This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The $15 minimum wage for federal workers and federal contractors is now in effect. The administration's executive order from April 2021 set that minimum wage requirement, which began this past Sunday. The directive will impact about 70,000 federal workers and 300,000 federal contractors. Two members of the House Oversight and Reform Committee have introduced new legislation to improve government cybersecurity. FISMA 2022 is the Federal Information Security Modernization Act of 2022. It comes after several high-profile cyber breaches, including the SolarWinds hack and the vulnerabilities discovered in Log4j software. FISMA 2022 would clarify and streamline the roles of the National Cyber Director's Office and CISA, as well as other cyber-related agencies. GovExec reports that some federal agencies are moving forward with enforcing vaccine requirements, even though a federal court has halted the enforcement of the White House's mandate. For example, both the Veterans Affairs Department and the Health and Human Services Department are keeping their vaccine mandates in place. In total, about 98% of the federal workforce is in compliance with the administration's previous order. President Biden has said that domestic terrorism goes against everything the country stands for and poses a direct challenge to the country's national security, democracy and unity. In June of last year, the White House released their strategy for countering domestic terrorism. Molly Salzkog has written an assessment of that strategy. She's a senior intelligence analyst at the Sufon Group. Molly, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So this national strategy has been out since June of last year. What progress has been made so far? Well, there have been a couple of very important uh, measures taken um, by the government in this regard to um, implement some of the uh, ideas and strategies in, in the national strategy. And first, um, the Department of Homeland Security doubles it, doubled its budget for programs aimed at preventing radicalization uh, to violence. And it also revamped the prevention program to take a more of a public health approach. And that is a very important lesson learned from 20 years of preventing um, violent extremism. Uh, secondly, the Defense Department held a military-wide stand-down to train everyone in the armed forces on the threat of domestic extremism. And just last month, they actually released new guidelines and policies to deal with the rising um, threat of extremism in its ranks. And lastly, um, only earlier this month, uh, the Department of Justice announced that it's forming a specific um, new unit focused exclusively on the domestic terrorism. So these are all very important implementations so, Ed, that we're seeing. So there are four pillars to the strategy. The first is understanding and sharing domestic terrorism-related research. The second is about prevention, stopping the recruitment into organizations and then mobilizing to violence. How do you do that? That is the million dollar question that the United States has actually grappled with throughout the 20 years um, that where uh, the focus of the U.S. Uh, uh, counterterrorism apparatus has been largely um, you know, focused abroad on groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, international terrorist organization. Now, the primary threat, as, as you mentioned, comes from the, within. And I think one key here, like I 
uh, is you know tank, taking a public health prevention approach. Um, what we can see, what many experts in this field have also pointed out, is that the threat, the narratives that are radicalizing are becoming more and more mainstream. So it's very important to not take a purely um, you know law enforcement or intelligence approach. We need that for sure. And the, the efforts and resources that are devoted to that are very important. Um, and one of the strongest pillars of the strategy is actually sharing um, you know, with our allies and partners, intelligence and so forth. But when it comes to prevention programs here in the United States, it's very important to target the underlying drivers of extremism and not only, you know, try to arrest our way through this issue. I wanted to ask you about that because the third pillar is disrupting and deterring terrorism activity, which is mostly the FBI, that's law enforcement. The last pillar is dealing with the long-term contributors to domestic terrorism. Expand on that. Exactly. That is, you know, perhaps the most ambitious part of this strategy because it's really going after the long-term, you know, cycles of violence, the root causes of what is um, radicalizing people, um, and it, it is you know, aiming to uh, boost the uh, confidence in the democratic institutions, in the government and bridge polarization and so forth. And here, you know, we haven't seen much progress yet because it's a very long-term part of the strategy. And I think the key here is for the Biden administration to uh, continue evaluating, you know, year after year as the strategy is implemented, what has been effective and what is not so effective, what do we need to, you know, amend in order to be more effective regarding this fourth pillar. You know, the strategy emphasizes cooperation with foreign partners and allies, as you had mentioned before. But why is that, given that this is a domestic issue? Right. And I think that is something that perhaps not most Americans are aware of. But actually, in our research, uh, we have found that a lot of the most violent um, individuals and organizations on in the United States, specifically white supremacy extremist organizations, actually have strong um, financial operational radicalizing ties to like-minded individuals overseas, like in Canada, uh, like in Europe, even as far away as Australia. And therefore, it's very very important, and this is part of the strongest part of the strategy, actually, is to continue that the United States is leading in this fight against, you know, racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism, white supremacy extremism, neo-Nazism on the global stage as well, as we have done in the fight against Al-Qaeda uh, and ISIS and share intelligence uh, with our allies and partners to combat this threat that is also becoming transnational in nature. And Molly, what are the gaps or weaknesses that you see in this national strategy? Um, well, that is the, what I mentioned is that the threat is mainstream and it's coming for, from within, um, primarily. And without, um, it's, it's a strategy, you know, so it's without recommendations or thresholds for measuring actual success on certain parts of the strategy. And so it will be very essential that um, the administration continues to work to measure the effectiveness of certain part of the strategy. Where it falls short, it will be key to propose 
new innovative solutions or workarounds to deal with the most serious risks related to the domestic terrorism threat. And lastly, to not take a purely law enforcement approach. It's very important that these extra um, resources have been given to um, the Department of Justice, that they're hiring more analysts, more experts, more prosecutors. That's all very important to prevent it in the short term, prevent the attacks from killing innocent Americans. But in the long run, we need to break the cycle of violence and radicalization. And you do that through prevention programs and taking a public health approach more. All right. Well, Molly, we'll continue to follow the implementation of the strategy. Thanks so much for joining us. Coming next, the national security impacts of climate change. Still ahead on Government Matters, is it time to start including climate considerations into those security strategy and planning? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The administration released several documents last year related to the impact of climate change on national security. This year, it's time to start actually changing how agencies do business and begin integrating climate considerations into national security practices. That's according to a report by Brigitta Hugh. She's a program assistant at the Center for Climate and Security. Brigitta, welcome to the program. Hi, Mimi. Thank you so much for having me. You write that one of the key takeaways from the administration's documents is that the national security community, community is being forced to re-examine its assumptions about how the world works. What do you mean by that? Um, what my co-author Aaron Sikorsky and I mean is that in today's world, we're facing what we used to think were the most extreme weather events, right? So thinking about Colorado this last December, the big fire that they faced, thinking about just over the weekend, the flooding in Brazil that has killed 19 people. So those events we used to think of and, and things like them, we used to think of them as the most extreme events that we would face. And that's no longer the case, right? That's our day to day, that's our year to year. So we're having to re-examine exactly what we think of when we think of climate disasters. And that's what we mean by changing the calculus. We can no longer rest on what we used to think. And the IPCC um, report that came out in August also says that, that we can't look at the past to, to predict the future and to plan for the future. So how does climate, um, climate change shape and worsen other national security concerns? So taking Russia, for example, right now, the Russia-Ukraine situation, right? One of the things that is at the top of the news right now is the fact that Russia supplies about 35% of the natural gas that goes to Europe. So if Russia were to turn off uh, the natural gas there, then Europe would be in a really bad way because they don't have a lot of stockpiles for other reasons. So if you're thinking about that and you're thinking about how do we increase uh, resiliency to something like that, to some sort of uh, power failure, to some sort of energy failure, then what we need to be investing in is renewable energy. So climate will, because we're trying to draw down mitigation anyway, that's a win-win for us. And one of the, you know, so it's going to impact the political considerations of, of every country, Russia included, that we need to be thinking about how the energy, how we supply energy, how we are preparing for future energy failures, whether it is turning accidentally or on purpose, turning off gas or um, creating 
more resilient infrastructure to deal with those kinds of power failures. So I, I want to go through some of your recommendations. The, the first is to mainstream climate security in regional strategies. What does that mean? So we want, um, so thinking about the way that intelligence agencies are set up or the Department of Homeland, you know, of um, the, the U.S. Agency for International Development, they're set up into regional analysis cohorts or you focus on regions. So each of those regions is usually concerned with the political developments, the economic developments in their region. What we want them to be also thinking about is how climate is going to affect all of that. It needs to be part of the calculus, um, everything they're doing. So they're thinking about how um, droughts are going to impact livelihoods in the Sahel and how that could create ten increased tension where governance is poor things like that. So another recommendation is to increase climate security support for allies and partners. Specifically, which allies and what kind of support? Uh, so we're thinking there um, a lot of information sharing and climate cooperation. One of the easy low-hanging fruits would be to to work more closely with our NATO partners. Um, NATO is also increasing and ramping up its climate security considerations in the way that they're uh, preparing for climate security in the way that they're maneuvering. So doing things like uh, war game exercises that focus on climate risks is really a low hanging fruit that we can do right now to increase resilience between ourselves, with ourselves and with our, our neighbors and allies. Do you feel like the administration is taking a whole of government approach or is every agency working on its own? Um, right now we're seeing, I think, I think it's like we're moving in that direction, right? So the four reports that you mentioned at the top, um, those reports that were released in November did take a more whole of government approach. Those came out of the intelligence community, the DOD and um, Department of Homeland Security, and then the Office of the, Nas of the Director of National Intelligence. But they were created in in a partnership with the science agencies. So that's a good step in the, the right direction. And, and we want to see more steps like that. Brigitte, what do you think is the best way to institutionalize climate change strategies into our national security agencies so it's not this on again, off again approach? Right. One of the key ways and one of the ways that I think um, that my colleagues and I push for a lot is bringing in climate experts. So bringing in people who have the backing in the science into the national security agencies and into the development agencies. So they are there to advocate for climate policies and climate security considerations, right? If you have people in the room who are trained to think about the science, then they're going to pull the science in to their analysis and that's going to be crucial. And if you have the only thing we can really count on, um, we can do policies and we can do things that will be reversed, but if you have people in the room and people who are going to be there and have longevity, then that's, that's a strength, right? All right, well, we appreciate you being on the program. Thanks very much, Brigitte. Up next, the Thrift Savings Plan has released its 2021 annual expenses. Straight ahead on Government Matters, we take a look at how those trends would save money for TSP participants. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, FRTIB, has gone live with its financial systems modernization platform. The new platform will replace multiple legacy systems for the thrift savings plan. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the FRTIB. Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to see you. So it took about 15 months to implement the FSM. What are some of the main achievements of that platform? What we've done is we've replaced four legacy systems that were functional but old, and we've replaced them with three hot systems that are integrated. And so it has reduced any uh, data entry between the three, uh, and which of course greatly reduces any chance of errors um, in the system. So it has been an enormous lift but it was a, a huge achievement for our, our chief financial officer. And does that benefit the, the plan members in any way, that um, enhancement, that modernization? To the extent that we're not spending money to maintain old systems and that what we're doing was less efficient than what we're doing now, absolutely. They won't see any direct um, impact because this is an internal use system but it will help them because it what makes us more efficient um, saves them money. So TSP has uh, released its annual expenses for 2021. What were some of the trends that you saw for average net assets? Well, the, the stock market, as we all know, last year was gangbusters. So uh, the amount, the assets under, uh, under uh, the assets under management grew by over $100 billion, and our net expenses were able to then fall because the way we get our expense ratio is it's what we have expended last year over the amount of money that we're um, managing. So our net, uh, our net expense ratio last year was 4.3 basis points which translates to 4.3 cents per thousand dollars invested. So what are some of the things that you do, Kim, that save money for participants? What we do is we don't spend all the money we can. Um, I know that sounds crazy, but our board uh, approves a budget for us and we do not bill the participants at the beginning of the year for that amount of money. We only spend we only charge them what we're spending. And so we're very mindful about that. And last year, um, we only spent roughly 80% of the budget that we had available to us. And in so doing, again, we minimized uh, the amount of money that participants are having to play, pay to run the plan. And is that considered the administrative expenses then for the, they, the fund? Exactly. Those are the administrative expenses of the funds. Um, what we spend as an agency to to run the plan are the administrative expenses, and they're offset by loan fees, for example, or forfeitures for people losing the, leaving the plan before they're vested, and then whatever amount we have spent. That's that's the total net administrative expense. So there are also some updates for the Converge program. Remind us what that program is. So Converge is the name we've given our transfer to our new record keeper, which is still on track to go live this summer. Um, and we 
couldn't be any more excited about it, to be quite honest. Um, it is an enormous amount of work, and but we are moving forward nicely. We have set up um, secure agreements with the payroll agencies because obviously having a wonderful record keeping system doesn't do us any good if we don't have um, data and money coming in from the participants. So getting those secure connections tested and up and running is um, a huge step in the right direction. And there's something called critical readiness activities. What are those? What are you looking at? What we're looking at are the things that are have to be done to make this thing work. And one of them um, was a we did a, a transfer of data and it was uh, after all the security agreements were reviewed by our our chief invest our chief uh, information security officer, we were able to transfer non-anonymized data to see a how long it would take to transfer, and b once they got it, was it all in the right format? Was it able to be processed? And that's what we're working through right now. And it, as of right now, it went very well, and we're very pleased with that. You're also planning a participant communications campaign for next month, uh, or in February, I should say. What will that include, and what what's that all going to be about? Well, as, as we've talked before, there are a number of changes that are coming um, to name just a mobile app, for example, and and different ways to, to work with the TSP. Um, and we don't want to take people off guard. So in February, as you said, we're kicking off the campaign. We mail out um, annual statements to all our participants. And so in, in that will be our letter from our, our executive director explaining what converges and what they're uh, <coughs> expecting to see. And then over the next few months, we will have emails and things on our website and various other um, uh, ways to tell people what to expect and what they need to do or not need to do to get ready for Converge Go Live. All right. Well, Kim, thanks for being on the program and thanks for the update. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And listen to our Government Matters podcast, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can also find every episode on our website. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today, and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers 
through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.